We continue on in our series in 1 John. We'll be meditating just on verses 12 through 14 of 1 John chapter 2. And I'll make reference to Jeremiah 31 in the sermon. If you want to turn there as well, you could keep your finger there. But many of those things written in the prophet Jeremiah about the new covenant we see fulfilled in the New Testament and even expressed here in 1 John concerning forgiveness and knowledge of God. And that's what we read about here in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Here now... God's word. The Apostle John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word, and we pray that, indeed, he would write it in our hearts once again this evening. Well, what is Christian self-esteem? Maybe you saw that sermon title in or scratching your head a little bit, Pastor Daniel, what is Christian self-esteem? Uh, according to one definition, self-esteem in general deals with a person's subjective sense of their personal value and worth. And the world says that we get better self-esteem by simply thinking positive, perhaps, or repeating certain affirmations that will help us to increase our subjective sense of our self-worth. Here are a few affirmations from an article I read recently. One is this. We are to say to ourselves, I am worthy of success. Another one, I can have everything I want in life. Another one, what I want is coming to me. You know, when I was converted in the Pentecostal church in this particular stream of Pentecostalism, I remember being taught that whatever you claimed by faith in prayer, God would most certainly grant to you. Because Jesus died for our diseases, we could claim healing right now in Jesus' name. Because Jesus promised us the abundant life, we could claim right now wealth and riches and a prosperous life outwardly. As one preacher once put it, whatever I confess, I possess. You know, the problem with this kind of teaching is it doesn't really follow the pattern of Jesus' own life, right? Of suffering leading to glory. Uh, furthermore, if we don't receive in this life right now, even as things we prayed for, for, for healing or for wealth or for a healthy marriage, if we don't get those things right now, it's not because we don't live in a, it's not because we live in a fallen world, but it's because we don't have strong enough faith. And so you could see how this kind of false teaching would crush people because if they don't actually have a good life or even a prosperous Christian life, it's because they're not strong enough in their faith. These positive affirmations connected with self-esteem are not bad in themselves, but they have a very bad starting point. Biblical self-esteem, if we want to redeem that word, acknowledges the reality of sin and our own broken situation and locates our self-worth in not the reality we create for ourselves, but in the reality that God declares over us, that we are image bearers of God who have been forgiven 
for the sake of Jesus Christ. You see, biblical self-esteem is not about creating for ourselves our own reality as if we were autonomous creators of our own lives, but it's about aligning ourselves to God's reality and who he says we are in Christ. And the Apostle John is writing to Christians who are insecure about their Christian faith and who are wondering about their status before God because false teaching has come into the church even here in the first century. And he's calling them in this text, beloved, and he's calling us to remember who God says they are in Christ. And so there's three things that John tells us about who we are. There's going to be three statements that we could even remind ourselves of from God's word. God says simply, we are forgiven, we are known, and we are victorious. Forgiven, known, and victorious. First, we'll look at how we are forgiven. Now, there's a bit, as you look at this text, there's a bit of debate on the categories that John is highlighting here. Is he referencing physical or spiritual stages of life? You know, often these can coincide even in our lives, but when he writes to young men, children, fathers, is he speaking about physical categories or spiritual categories? And I think these truths that he peeks about apply to every Christian, no matter where you're at, but they have a special note of application for those who are in these various stages of spiritual development. There are those who are new to the faith. There are those who are growing in grace. And there are those who are more spiritually mature. The first group he addresses here is little children. Now, if you've been with us looking at John, you'll remember that he uses that phrase throughout his letters to reference the covenant people of God as a whole. But these words here might have a special focus on those who are new to the faith, whether those be actually small little children or whether they be new converts to the faith who are adults. And he wants them to remember the ABCs, you might say. He wants them to remember the essentials of forgiveness. As children are often taught to sing, even from an early age, Jesus loves me, him who died, heaven's gates to open wide. He will forgive all my sin and he'll let his little child come in. Why do God's people need this reminder about forgiveness? Well, up until this point in John's letter, you might remember he's been saying some pretty hard things. Right? Last week, we were reminded that if we hate our brothers and sisters, according to John, we're still in spiritual darkness, and that darkness has blinded our eyes. Uh, earlier in John, he talks about confessing our sins to each other, talks about walking in the light as God is in the light. In the very next section after this text, he's going to speak about not loving the world. These are some hard things. And as Christians, we might hear these commands of God, and we might get discouraged. Lord, have I loved you enough? Have I walked in your commandments enough? And Christians could have doubts. And so John here reminds believers of the ABCs concerning forgiveness. Because John wants the Christian church to walk in assurance. And he tells them that you are forgiven for his name's sake. Notice when we talk about Christian self-esteem, it doesn't minimize sin. But John acknowledges sin here. In the world today, again, self-esteem often just focuses only on the positive, which again is not all bad. But we won't appreciate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ until we acknowledge the bad news about ourselves and this world. 
And so John here tells us that we are forgiven of our sins. And this is part of the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31, verse 34. There in the Old Testament, concerning the new covenant, Jeremiah says, the God says through Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. All of the Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices and rituals looked forward to this day when God would finally and truly deal with the problem of sin. They all looked forward to a perfect and pure sacrifice that didn't have to be repeated again and again and again, year after year. But they looked for that final, full sacrifice that would finally put away sin. That's what Jesus came to do. When he gave himself at the cross, he truly dealt with our sins, past, present, and future. And he said there from the cross, it is finished, paid in full. Sin has been dealt with, mission accomplished. And that's why John writes here, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And this is a truth that is declared all throughout the scriptures that God saves his people for the glory of his name. And when John says here that your sins are forgiven, it's in the perfect tense, which means they have been forgiven in the past and they remain forgiven even in the present. That it's not that your past sins are forgiven, but you are a forgiven person in God's sight. And this is for the glory of God's own name, for his name's sake. Here are a couple of scriptures that connect forgiveness with the glory of God's own name. Ezekiel 36, 22. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Jeremiah 14, verse 7. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many, and we have sinned against you. Psalm 25, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. God is jealous for the glory of his holy name. And so in order that he might be honored and glorified among the nations, he works salvation for his people for his name's sake. And for those who are united to Jesus by true faith, baptized in the name of the triune God, the Lord forgives all of our sin for his glorious name. And that is such good news that we were reminded here that forgiveness is not actually based on how sincere our repentance is. It's not based upon how resolved we are to never walk in that sin again or how faithfully we walk before God. But we are forgiven on account of what Christ has done for us. It's for his name's sake. And that firm foundation is what gives us the motivation to truly live for God out of thankfulness and out of joy. In John chapter 8, Jesus encountered a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. and She was about to be stoned by the crowds. And perhaps you know the story. Jesus said to the crowds, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And they dropped their stones and they walked away from this woman. And Jesus said to her, woman, has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. See there, our identity as the forgiven 
motivates us to go and to live for the Lord. And so this is a gospel statement, a positive affirmation that God himself speaks over us and an affirmation that we could remind ourselves when we are battling temptation, when we sin, when we're in the pit of despair and and we don't even love ourselves. We can remind ourselves as Christians, I am forgiven for his namesake, for the glory of his holy name. Jesus said, paid in full, so that we can hear that glorious assurance of pardon from God's own mouth. And so John gives us that first statement, that we are forgiven. And then he gives us the second one, we are known. We are a forgiven people, and we are known. Once again, if you remember about 1 John, he was addressing false teaching that was causing doubts about people and how much they truly knew God. Early forms of Gnosticism and Docetism casted doubt on the people of God concerning whether or not they truly knew God at all. Because maybe they didn't have that special experience, that enlightenment from God. Last time we considered how the litmus test of true Christianity is not personal, private experience, but it's public love. And here John writes to the fathers and he says to them, you know him who is from the beginning. You know him. Fathers is probably a reference here to mature believers, those who have a spiritual backbone in the things of God. And all Christians know God, but mature believers in the Lord who have walked with God for years through various trials and tribulations know him in a deeper way. Those who have gone through marriage difficulties, those who have made it through various diseases and illnesses relying upon God, those who have maybe fallen away for a season and then been restored back to the Lord, they know something about God's grace and forgiveness and faithfulness in a special way because they've lived it. They've been through it. And you see, John wants to assure these mature believers of the deep knowledge they have about God so that they won't be troubled by these false teachers who are casting doubts upon them. He's saying, no, you know God. You know him who is from the beginning. He says later in chapter or in this chapter in verse 21, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. And again, in chapter 227, you don't need anyone to teach you because his anointing teaches you all things. But we learn as well from this text, beloved, that all true believers know God, even children. Verse 13, you see that? I write to you, children, because you know the Father. This knowledge of God amongst all the people of God is part of the promise of the new covenant. Again, in Jeremiah 31, 34, it prophesies about this new covenant time that we're living in when all believers will know the Lord in a special way, joined to God through the one mediator, Jesus. Look at Jeremiah 31, 34. It says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. From the little children to the fathers and mothers. It's not just the prophets and the priests and the kings, children. It's not just pastors and elders and deacons who know God. No, even the little children know the Father who is from the beginning. Our Lord Jesus modeled this in 
Matthew 19, when he welcomed the children to himself, even when they were hindered from the disciples, showing that indeed the children show forth the grace of God. And Jesus says, let them come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And that's why it's so beautiful in Reformed worship services that children are involved and they are here in our worship because God has a blessing for them. Children, God wants you to know him and to get to know him more. He wants you to grow in this confusing world in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Right? We live in a world that doesn't know the ABCs about reality, about who we are as human beings, about why we're here on this earth, confusion about what's right and what's wrong, about our sexuality, about male and female. The very fabric of humanity is confusing in this world. And God says, little children, I want you to know me. And I've given you my word so that in this world of confusion, you might have true knowledge throughout your life that brings you joy, that brings you flourishing. Jesus says in John 17, 30, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And so here's another positive statement that we could carry with us as Christians. Not only can we remind ourselves, Lord, I'm forgiven for your name's sake, but because, Lord, you have been gracious, I have a supernatural knowledge in this confused world about who you are and about who I am. Not because I'm so smart and I figured it out, but because you've been so gracious to me that I might know you and that I might love you. In this world of confusion, true knowledge comes from being connected to Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And this knowledge we have of God, beloved, this is what gives us confidence in this life and assurance as we walk in this confused world. And so we are forgiven, we are known, and finally, John says, we are victorious. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And again, verse 14, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is a much needed reminder in John's day. As we see later in chapter two, one of the heaviest texts of the New Testament, the church here in John's day was following, uh, was, was experiencing a schism, church split. John says, because antichrists have come in and they're leading the people astray. They're spreading destructive teaching that's splitting up the church. There's ungodly living taking place. And so there's all these pressures. And what does John say to the young men, that group of believers that is growing in the faith, but in that spiritual journey that is tempting where they might fall this way or this way? He says, young men, young women, you have overcome the evil one. I remember it was so sad when I was in Canada, I went to the funeral of a, of a young man who battled uh, many demons throughout his life, suffering trauma all the way back to his first years of life before he was adopted by a family. This weighed him down and he struggled with many things throughout his whole life. And I remember going there and I remember going to church and thinking, you know, how many battles are people really facing that we don't know about, right? How many Battles are going on behind closed doors that we don't always get to see, where people are, are struggling. And even true Christians at times, you know, hearing the lies of Satan himself accusing us 
day after day that we are not really loved by God, that we're too dirty, that God hates us, that he doesn't have love for us, just for other people. As we confess in our Heidelberg Catechism, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they never stop attacking us. And so sometimes the battle, even for the Christian, is overwhelming and strong. And we can become burdened as we come to church. And we need to hear again these words that John says, young men, young women, you have overcome the evil one. Martin Luther once recorded his battles with the devil. He said the devil would come to him and whisper into his ear all manner of filthiness and sin. This is what he says. He says, the devil would come to him and say, Martin, you are a liar, greedy, lustful, a blasphemer, a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God. To which Luther would respond, well, yes, I am. And indeed, Satan, you don't know the half of it. I have done much worse than that. And if you care to give me your full list, I could no doubt add to it and help it make it more complete. But you know what? My Savior has died for all of my sins. Those you mention, those I could add, and indeed those I'm unaware of having done. It does not change the fact that Christ has died for all of them. His blood is sufficient. And on the day of judgment, I shall be exonerated because he has taken all my sins on himself and has clothed me in his own perfect righteousness. You have overcome the evil one, John says. Not because you are so strong, but because by faith you cling to a strong Savior who is able to make you stand on that day of judgment. And that's the declaration of pardon that young men and young women need to hear. That's the declaration of pardon we all need to hear. That by faith, right now, God says, right now, that victory is yours. That's 1 John chapter 5, where John says in verse 4, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's amazing. Christianity is the only religion that declares that, that that victory that we long for as human beings is already ours if we have faith in Jesus. This is a hard time for young men and for young women. You know, mental illness seems to be on the rise. So many battles today against lust and temptations to fall in all of these different pits. We've got the battles against our own sins. And John here wants to remind those who are growing in maturity where victory is truly found. It's not in how strong we are or how strong we think you are. It's found in our connection with Christ, our strong Savior, As John Owen once put it, even a weak faith takes hold of a strong Christ, the one who's able to give us the victory. And beloved, that's what we see not just here, but even in the Old Testament. When Israel was afraid of their enemies as they were going up to the Red Sea and they had enemies behind them in the sea in front of them, what does God say to them in Exodus 14? He says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. When Joshua was commanded to lead God's people into the promised land, where more enemies were there, the Lord said to him in Joshua 1 verse 9, 
Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so, dear young men and young women, this is the gospel truth, the gospel affirmation that you want to remind yourselves of every day when you step into this scary world sometimes, that the victory is found in Jesus Christ, in being connected with this strong Savior who's able to hold you fast through every season of life, through every temptation, through every battle, and to give you strength. And if you truly wonder if true victory and strength can be found in Jesus, even over your own particular sins, God says to you in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you wonder if you could truly do battle with Satan and win in the end, God reminds you in Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. If you wonder if the battles of this life will ever come to an end, because sometimes they seem to last forever, the Lord reminds each one of us from Revelation 12, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. See, as the word of God dwells in us richly, we are equipped like Jesus to fight by God's word and spirit against all of the lies and all of the accusations of the devil and of this world and against the corruption of our own hearts. So, dear brothers and sisters, what can lift up our spirits day by day so that we can live for the Lord? It's not the shallow self-help mantras of the day, that cause us to go deeper into ourselves to find our worth. But it is the gospel that pulls us out of ourselves to our God and to what he says over us because of Jesus Christ. Christian self-esteem locates our self-worth in what Jesus has done for sinners. Even though our experience at times and how we feel might be disconnected from these words here, These are not mantras that we simply say to ourselves, but these are truths that God says over us, that our feeble and questioning hearts are seeking to be conformed to. But God wants us to step out into a new day, into a new week, being reminded that we are forgiven, that we are known, that we are victorious in Jesus Christ. And so may we continue by his help to walk in who he says we are, May we preach these truths to our own hearts and also to one another as a covenant community, reminding ourselves of these gospel affirmations all the more as we see the day of Jesus Christ drawing near. Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, our Father in heaven, we pray that because of the blood of Jesus, that you would not hold against us any of the transgressions we have done not hold against us even the evil that clings to our flesh, but look upon us in your grace because of the shed blood of Christ. Lord, we confess that we're weak and we not, cannot stand on our own even for a moment. Our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and the flesh never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us. Make us strong. Make our families strong. Make your church strong by the power of your Holy Spirit 
so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we win the complete victory. For we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, indeed,